in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I'm all wired up. Um, hello. Uh, when I woke this morning, um, I was thinking about the... Um, I was actually singing, which is quite disturbing in a way, but I was. And I was singing that wee song that says, those that wait on the Lord will renew their strength. And it's nothing to do with my preach. <laughs> but it weighed so heavenly on me this morning that I thought, I wonder are there others in the room that are waiting? And you're in the period of waiting. And um, I'm not even a sentence in and I'm crying, so that's going to be a long one. Uh, but I, I, I woke with that beautiful promise, those that wait on the Lord will renew their strength and they will rise up like eagles. And if that is you this morning, be encouraged by that promise because it is real and true. And that is what I offer you. So my task this morning, I'm on number six in our values, what kind of church and we want to be a grace-filled church. Philip Yancey says grace always has about it the scent of scandal, and he's written about it. He's made it his life's work. Um, and the, I'm preaching this week and next week. This week we're talking about a grace-filled church, and next week I believe that out of being a grace-filled church, we will practice radical welcome and hospitality and generosity because when we actually imbibe the grace of God in our lives, the natural outworking of that is hospitality and welcome and generosity. And so it's a two-parter, if you like. Um, I, have a, I have a few rhythms of when I'm preparing to speak and, and one of them is that I sit with... Steve, my husband, and I talk all through with him and I get his feedback and sometimes that's good and sometimes it's not. And yesterday, um, not for me as in, because I don't like to be told, but anyway. Um, so yesterday we were doing that and I was talking to him about what I felt about grace and what I wanted to communicate. And I'm very distractible, as any of you know me knows. And I suddenly looked down at my bare feet and I went, oh my goodness, I've got my granny's bunions. And Stephen and his inimitable way said and do we think that's relevant to the preach <laughs> and I said no of course it isn't and then as the day went on I thought yes of course it is of course it is my granny's bunions are relevant to this preach and the reason why is because when I think of my family story and I think of grace I think of what my grandparents sewed into the very DNA of our family. And it was about grace and mercy. And those two last um, hymns that you played this morning, that first, that second one about grace and mercy like a mighty river, I remember my granny singing that over me. I remember my granny singing that over me. She was so precious to me. And, and amazing grace, obviously. And so... My granny's story, my grandparents' story is relevant. They lived in Donegal um, all their lives, uh, well, up until the 1940s. Um, they were fourth or fifth generation Malinhead people, a beautiful part of the world. And they were wealthy in the sense of that era. They lived in big homes. They had, you know when a home's called Malin House, you know that it's got a bit of money behind it. So they lived in big homes and they were Presbyterians, they were godly people and they raised three children, one was my mum. 
And in the 40s, or the late 30s in Ireland, they got to the point, and I'm not asking for your views on this because I, I have different views on it, but this was their story. And in the 1930s, they felt that in order to raise their children as good, God-fearing Presbyterians, they could no longer live in Donegal because it was becoming hard. There was a lot going on in Irish history, as you all know. And so they made the quite big decision to move north. My mum was about six at the time, and she says, I remember thinking the, the streets were going to be paved with gold in Belfast, because that's what we thought it was going to be. So they left behind everything, their status, their, their money, their wealth, because you didn't buy and sell in those days, and family were saying. And they started again, really in quite humble beginnings. And they lived in a, a humble enough home in Dundonald, and that's what I remember as a kid. My granda, or papa as he was to me, he started a market garden in his back garden. He started to sell vegetables, and that's how they made their living. And they lived quite simply. And I remember as a kid and as a teenager going to the house, seeing the Donegal tour and going, you left this? And it just seemed bizarre to me. And as I think about it now as an adult, I think... There was the opportunity there for the trauma of leaving behind and coming essentially as refugees to a new land because from Malin and Donegal to Belfast in the 40s was a new land. Um, and yet there was the seeds that could have been sown in their hearts of bitterness or anger or sectarianism or bigotry. And they chose none of them. They chose grace and mercy, and they spent all of their lives caring for the other, being interested in the other, and always welcoming. And they imbibed those values in my parents, who then imbibed them in us, and we did that in our children. So when I think of the paths that my granny walked with her bunioned feet, she chose grace. And I choose grace, and grace, those seeds that she sowed, which I believe were actually sowed into the DNA of our family, those seeds only come to fruition when I choose to reap them, when I discipline myself and choose grace and mercy and love. They don't just happen. And so that is how I, I want to begin. I want you to think about your story and think about the values that you have imbibed in your heart maybe that were actually sown and written into your very DNA, and think, am I choosing my identity in Jesus, living in his grace and his mercy and his love? And in doing that, I then reach the others, others around me, and I welcome them. Bonhoeffer writes brilliantly in his book on discipleship that there's cheap grace and there's costly grace. And cheap grace sometimes is what we want, it's forgiveness without repentance. It's baptism without the discipline. It's communion without confession. And it is grace without discipleship, without the cross, and mainly without Jesus. But costly grace, and that is the one that we want. It is the pearl of great price that we bury in the field. It calls us to follow, and it is costly grace is the incarnation of the Lord in my life and in yours. So that is where I believe we are called to, that we are called to incarnate the grace of the Lord and to bring it to those around us. When God spoke to Moses, 
noted in Exodus, the Lord passed in front of Moses calling out, Yahweh the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy. I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. God used this attribute of grace to describe himself. The Hebrew word was kunun, the noun is ken, and it means grace and favor. And what it means is that someone of higher status to someone else of lower status shows them grace and favor. If we look in the Psalms, we'll see it 40 times, seeking grace and favor. In 47 times within the Old Testament, they talk about finding Ken in your eyes, going to another and looking for the grace and the mercy and the delighting of the Lord. Boaz has it in his story with Ruth. She asks him, how have I found favor with you? He is reflecting the grace that he has found in the Lord. Esther goes to the king and seeks for her people, seeks mercy and Ken. Can I have Ken for my people? Can I seek your grace and your mercy? Spare their lives. And the king responds. In John, it'll come up behind me. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. This is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. And when we look at the life of Jesus and as a community, that is how we understand our theology and understand the Bible. We look at it through what we see in the life of Jesus. And what we see is that Jesus actually never spoke about grace because he actually didn't need to. He was grace in a pair of sandals. Every single person that he connected with, that he, imbibed, that he dealt with, he showed them grace. He never showed them mercy, and he showed them costly grace. He said to the woman who was in sin, he knew her, you're my daughter, I love you, but go and sin no more. So there's something about grace that maybe we have cheapened it in the church that everything's fine all the time and we're all good. No, there is, there is a call to become more Christ-like and to be disciples of him. And if we think of that idea of the Ken, God sees you as his treasure. He delights in you regardless of your status or your behavior. And then if we think of the parables, beautifully crafted stories designed to disorient us, because they, there in them, Jesus is challenging us to think about the alternative kingdom that he is bringing all things new. He tells us that it's a countercultural way of life and a way of living at peace with the Lord, with one another, and with creation. And so I want you to give me a little bit of poetic license, and I'm going to tell a story from the parables. And look, you'll know it. It's the prodigal son. And we know about the prodigal son, and we know about the big brother, and we know about the father. So I'm going to give myself a go at being the mother. I'm going to tell their story. So as you know, my story, you don't know my name, it's not told in the Bible, but I was married, we were wealthy, we had land, we had staff, we had people who worked for us, we had two boys, 
We had two boys, and you know my husband. You've heard his story. And the boys were who they were. The first one was always a good soul. He was a good boy. He was a compliant. He always did what he was supposed to do. The second one was more of a rascal. A lot of fun, but definitely a rascal. And in our culture, whenever my husband dies, everything that is ours goes to the boys. And they take it on. It's not in a bank. It's not like money we can give them. It is land. It is sheep. It is animals. It is place. And it's called their inheritance. And the boys take it over. And in our culture, it is a bit strange, but the elder boy gets two portions and the younger boy gets one. And so what happened when our boys were getting up to adulthood? The younger son came one day. And the word for inheritance in our culture in Hebrew is kleronomia. But that is not what he asked for. He asked for uzia. And uzia means you as my family are dead to me. I want nothing more to do with you and I want you to give me my portion. I'm gone. And so I watched my husband, deeply shamed, deeply rejected, deeply hurt. His son was saying, you're dead to me and I'm gone. And he went and he started to gather land and he sold things and he got the money and he gave it to our boy and off he went. And we watched him head out over the hills and he was gone. And we wept and we grieved and we were angry and we were confused. And then in our culture, there's another practice called kazaza. And when someone leaves the family, we all gather in the village and we get a big stone pot and we break it. And what we're saying is, you're gone, you're done, you cannot come back. And the night that that happened, it's what we do in our culture. But boy, did I cry that night because my beautiful boy was gone and we had no idea where he would be or what would happen to him. Also in our culture, when there's family difficulties, it is the elder son's job to seek reconciliation. So I reminded him of that responsibility. I said to him, you need to go and get your brother back. But he was angry, he was hurt, and all he wanted was justice. So he worked in the fields and he did a good job, but he refused to engage or try. I watched my husband every night and he stood at the, at the gates of our fields and he looked out the road hoping to see his boy. And he came in, he was a quiet man, there wasn't much conversation when he came in and nothing really changed. We waited, we were the talk of the whole community. There we were, and suddenly our boy had said, you're over, I want nothing more to do with you. And so the time went on. I wrote many letters on papyrus paper. I didn't know where to send them, he'd gone to a foreign land. I wrote begging, I wrote angry, I wrote frustrated, I wrote hurt. I told him about his father. I told him what he'd done to us. I begged him to come back and nothing ever happened. And then one night, many months later, we were sitting outside the front of our, our home and we saw this stumbling figure way over the hills starting to come. And something in me started to think, I think I recognize that boy. I think I know that boy. And I watched him 
And I looked at him. I didn't dare say anything to my husband because I knew he couldn't cope with any more disappointment. And so I waited. But as he got closer, we saw he'd lost a lot of weight. He was kind of back to that teenage, you know, when they're too big for their body and they're a bit gangly. And he came back up and I looked at my husband and I said, look, it's him, it's him. And I wondered in that moment, what is my husband going to do? He would be quite within his rights to go and shake him. He would be quite within his rights to do much more than that. And I watched my godly husband and he did another thing that never, ever happens in our culture. He got up, he grabbed his skirt tails and he ran. He ran. Our boy who had caused him pain and trauma and rejection and shame and hurt, he ran out to meet him. He came back in and he said, we're having the best party this village has ever known. So all those people who had, who had crashed the bowl and said, you're dead, you're gone, they had to come and celebrate with us because we were over the moon. And the night of the party, our elder son, he stomped about and he was not happy. And in our culture, when there's a party, the elder son is the one who gives out the drinks. But no, he was having none of it. He humphed and he stomped. And he went to my husband at the end of the night and he said to him, how could you do this? How could you do this? How has this happened? Why is this happening? And my husband said to him, you want justice, but I am showing you grace because you are with me all the time and everything that I have is yours. And so when I think now as an old woman of my boys and their lives, and I think that one looked like he was good, but he actually wanted justice. One messed up and threw it all away. And what did they get from my husband? They got welcome. They got grace, they got restoration. And so, my friends, if you wonder what grace is, if you have any questions about what the grace of the Father is, it is right there in those moments. The boy that was lost is now found. He is welcome back and he is made new. His position is restored and we will celebrate. There is much rejoicing. That right there is grace. Brian Zand, who Dave loves to quote, and sometimes I try to keep up, um, he talks about uh, how the God that we have, that we show others, is the one that we will experience. So if you want to look through the Bible, and you find a God of judgment, of rules, of regulations, you will find him because he is there. But if you look at the Lord through the eyes of Jesus, and if you preach the God that you preach to others will be the God that you experience for yourself. And often I wonder, God will be to us as he is when we preach him to others. What we say to others about God and about faith is how he will be to us. And the measure that we use to others is the one that will be used against us. Is that really what we want to rake in our lives? Do we want the justice that the elder son sought? 
or do we want the grace? I love this quote from Henry Newell. The story of the Bible is about how God is relentlessly pursuing a relationship with humanity. He continually strives to show us favor, even when we betray him or turn our backs on him. Throughout the Bible, we see the God of the universe find ways to reconcile with a hard-hearted and rebellious humanity. And that's what it means when it says, God is gracious. God simply keeps reaching down into the dirt of our humanity and he resurrects us from the graves that we dig for ourselves, the graves that are maybe addiction, bad choices, sin, poor relationships, selfishness. God in his grace keeps loving us back to life over and over and over again. And so this morning, I want to remind you, here's another beautiful quote from Philip Yancey. Grace means that there is nothing I can do to make God love me more. And there's nothing I can do to make God love me less. It means that I, even I, who deserve the opposite, am invited to take my place at the table in God's family. And so I don't know where you are in your journey or what's going on in your lives, but sometimes I think that we don't really understand the grace of the Lord. And I go back to that stuff that Dietrich Bonhoeffer talked about, that it is costly to live a life of grace, that it is costly to follow Jesus and be his disciples. It's not an easy road. It is a road that is less traveled. It is a road that is hard. And yet, as we become more like him, we receive grace unto grace unto grace. There's a quote will come up behind me. Grace means that all of your mistakes now serve a purpose instead of serving a shame. Because when we sit under the grace of the Lord, there is no shame. There is, shame has no place in your soul because grace is afforded to you. Grace is offered to you. And again and again, it is available. Many, many years ago, we um, went to hear Philip Yancey. And he spoke just after the ceasefires in Northern Ireland, a very significant time for our country. And he talked about how we as a nation now have the chance to live a new way. We as people who are followers of Jesus have a chance to model out to the world what being a people of grace what being a church of grace is all about. And what he said to us that night, I have never forgotten. He said, you can choose to stand in the river of grace. You can choose to live in the river of grace. And if you do, grace will flow all around you. But if you choose to stand in the rivers of judgment, that is what will be afforded to you. That is what will be afforded to you. And it says in Matthew 7, do not judge others and you will not be judged. Why, oh why would we turn, would we choose justice? I want to read a little bit here as we begin to come to the end. This is the challenge, I believe, Redeemer. This is the challenge. If we choose to live as church of grace and people of grace, can we free ourselves from the need to judge others? 
Yes, we can, by claiming for ourselves the truth that I am the beloved daughter and you are the beloved daughters and sons of the Lord. As long as we continue to live as if we are what we do, what we have, what other people think about us, we will remain filled with judgments, opinions, evaluations and condemnations. We will remain addicted to the need to put people and things in their right place to the degree that we embrace the truth that our identity is not rooted in our success, power or popularity. We can let go of our need to judge. Do not judge and you will not be judged because the judgments you give are the judgments you will get. The God that we believe in, the God that we frame, if he is one of justice and judgment, that is what we will receive. And that is how we will live. But if we embrace the Lord in all his grace and his mercy, and we imbibe that belief in ourselves, we will have no other option but to live out of that grace. And this week as you leave, I want you to think about if I put on the lens of grace. Brennan Manning, when he's introducing himself, he says, I am the one Jesus loves. <laughs> I am Stephanie, the one Jesus loves. And when I sit in that identity, by spending time with the Lord, by worshiping, by waiting, by being silent on a daily basis, I imbibe more and more that part of my identity. And when I really believe that, I don't have to be too concerned about you or what you're doing or what you think or how you live because my focus is on me and the Lord. And when I live out of, out of a place of grace, I believe I invite others into that place of grace. And so, Redeemer, this morning as we come to the table where this great exchange always begins... Gillian and Carl and Chloe are going to service the body and blood of Christ broken for you. And I'm going to invite you that when you come forward this morning, whisper it to yourself, say it out loud, say it to someone else, but introduce yourself as I am the one Jesus loves. I am the one Jesus loves. Because I believe that the more we work and on our identity as that, the more we will be able to bring the grace and the mercy of Jesus to this city. So I'm going to invite the band to come up, Fran, Caitlin, and our three servers. So tomorrow as you go into your place of work, tomorrow as you go to the shops, tomorrow as you get the kids out for school, tomorrow as you... Do something really boring that you have to do. Think of yourself as I am the one Jesus loves. And when you come out of that identity, perhaps every exchange that you have tomorrow will be slightly different. Because out of the grace that you have received, grace upon grace will always flow. So let's stand and let's worship. Come as a people who are loved, and come and be served. Take your time. There's no need to rush. And the band are going to lead us now. Thank you.